That doesn't sound right. Many non-Christians would say, well, I don't like that. And then many, many Christians say, well, I don't like that. That doesn't sound just. Because that's the natural reaction that comes from that verse. Well, God is so kind to us because he anticipates that question. Look at this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, why did God put that there? Because upon hearing that, everybody's saying that seems unjust. That's the natural impulse. That doesn't sound right. So God says, does this mean God is unjust? By no means. For he says to Pharaoh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God whom has mercy. So the first answer to the question, well, that seems like God is unjust, is simply this. God's not unjust. And we should be okay with that. We should all be okay with the fact that God is not unjust. These things are not mutually exclusive. God is just on the tail end of people saying, well, that doesn't sound right. God is just. The second question is anticipated really perfectly again. And, and we see this in verses 18 to 20. Here's what it says. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's, that's God. So what do people say? Well, then this is again. If you just give a poll question, okay, what's the first impulse inside of us? Well, then why does God find fault with people? If he hardens whom he wills and he has mercy on whom he wills, why in the world does God find fault with people? It's God's fault. Because that's the initial impulse. Right? Am I alone in saying that's what, when you're reading that, you think, well, why? okay, well then why is that, it seems like, why, do, why would God find fault then if that's the way it is? And here's what we get as we talk back to God and as we think those thoughts back to God. Here's what God gently and rightly says to us. Here's the answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. But here's the truth. We still want to talk back. Because we want more answers than that. God's answers to these questions are clear and they're plain. God is not unjust and who are we to talk back to God? But so many people don't like these answers from God. And here's the reality, I think, because the spirit of the age is egalitarianism. It's the same. Everybody gets the same things and everybody should have the same results. And if everybody didn't get their same results in our world, well, it's got to be some political problem or it's got to be some economic problem. We don't want just same opportunities for people. We want same results for people. The same opportunity is not enough for our world today. We want the same results for everybody. Okay? We, don't, we want everything to be the exact same. Well, God is not egalitarian. God does not give the same things to all people at the, in, the, in the exact same way. He does not give the same gifts to everyone in the exact same way. The spirit of the age is sameness, but God gives different gifts to different people, different measures of grace to the people he gives grace to. And he gives some people much more and some people little. He does not treat everyone the same way, although he does love everyone. And that feels wrong to us. This feels wrong. Because the spirit of the age is same, 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 same. We prefer 
that we have ultimate will, humanity, and God's will be bound. And that's why we're always left with a God who wants and desires a lot of things to happen, but just can't get things done because of human power. But he does not treat everyone the same way, and he is just in that. So when we don't like God's answers, we create God in our own image, and we miss the comfort that's intended for us in Romans chapter 8. Because where God takes us in the context of suffering, the suffering of God's people, is his sovereignty in salvation. It's his work. And for us to be in balance, regularly we talk about human responsibility here. And it's, it's our responsibility by the grace of God to make right decisions. Humans need to do that. We are responsible for the decisions that we make. But thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sermons about God's sovereignty need to be preached to counterbalance the man-centeredness that we have heard about for the last 150 years. Thousands upon thousands of sermons. What about God? What about His will? What about His power? Enough about our will and our power. What about God's and what He's doing in your life? And so much fear, anxiety, worry in our life comes from a greater trust in ourselves and our ability than God and His ability over our lives. And so I think to be in balance, God, we, we have to think about these things. So take a look with me. In the context of suffering, predestination is brought up. Not to bring greater anxiety for people, but to comfort them. To comfort them. To comfort their soul. So they can lay their head on the pillow at night and say, God, you got this. And you have me. First, we have a great promise. Look at verse 28. A great promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Look at this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know, corporately. We know this. We know this. And if we don't, we should. All things, all things for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God. That means Christians. Who are those who love God? Well, it's a one-to-one. -one. Those who love God are Christians. If you don't love God, you can't be a Christian. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And you've heard this before, I'm sure, but what's included in all things? Some things? Or all things? We're all thinking rational adults here. All things are included in all things. Everything. And this is a promise specifically to Christians. Non-believers throw around mantras all the time. Everything happens for a reason. And they have no foundation to say that on. But for the believer, we have these precious promises for times of difficulty when things feel chaotic. We have a passage here that says it's not chaotic. And there's no such thing as chaos. There may be the appearance of it. But I've got this. And it's all a piece of the puzzle. When you make a pie, it's amazing. When you make a pie, Jordan's an incredible baker. She's got all this baking that's been happening lately. And it's been so good. She's an incredible baker. And, uh, but the thing is, when you, when you bake bread, okay, if you put um, inside of bread, if you put just the flour in there, and then you say, well, that ingredient, I like bread, so I'm going to try these ing individual ingredients. And you just say, okay, if bread's good then flour must be good because I like bread and it's an ingredient in the flour. Okay, So I just go, I'm, I'm going to get a big bowl of flour this morning. And you eat that flour. That flour is not good. So when we say all things work together for good, we're not saying that all things are good because all things are not good. 
But all things in the life of the believer work together for good. And there's a big difference. All things work together for the good. And so when that flour is mixed with these other ingredients and this loaf of bread pops out, you eat that. You just can't hardly handle it. You just cut and cut and cut and we've ate a loaf. Slap some butter on that. Oh my goodness, it tastes so good. But flour alone is not very good. But the trust in the life of the believer is that, okay, this is painful and it's not good. It may even be evil. But what we have are these precious and true truths that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future is so bad that God won't make it work for your good. Nothing. And for those who love God, we don't have just the promises that God works the bad for our good, but we have a promise that all things in that are included good things, good gifts. That God even works the good for our good, because we have a tendency to define good in different ways than God defines good. God gives us good gifts for the sake of our soul to love him more, not for us to just love those gifts all the more. What I hear from Russ's sermon last week was so good. God even gives us the good gifts so we can enjoy them and say, God, thank you. God, thank you. He doesn't let those gifts end with the gifts. So God even works the good for our good. The bad and the good, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He even works the good for our good. There's better good than just simply the good things. It's the good of knowing that your heavenly father is with you and for you in those good gifts. So good. This is a promise. It's a promise for the waiting. It's a promise for the suffering. But what are these promises rooted in? What is the promise that all things will work together for those who love God and are called according to his promise? What's that promise rooted in? Like, what's, it, what's the soil it's growing out of? Well, it's, it tells us in verse 29, it's, it's in God's purposes. In God's very purposes. Look at verse 28b, rather. He works for all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's purpose. God's purpose. God's purpose. You and I have been called according, according to God's purposes. Every believer who has ever lived in this world has been called according to God's purpose. And so often, we can root our life and our existence and our very purpose in our life with God in our own purposes. It's like we approach God and we come to him and we root everything that's going on in our life and our purpose and, and, and we ask God to bless our purpose and we think that we catch God up into our purposes or we invite him into our purposes, but the opposite is actually true, that we are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose with you and you have been called into that purpose. It's an amazing truth. The Bible tells us this. It's clear. The Bible tells us we've been called according to his purpose, and so we should answer back, yes, God has purposes, and he is called according to his purpose, and that we have not called God according to our purposes. So our life with God and in Christ is about God's purposes in us and for us rather than being about our purposes in us and for us working themselves out into our lives. You are a believer in Jesus because of God's purposes in your life. You've been called 
that was his doing. He called you according to his purpose. God had a purpose with you, and he is getting you, and he has got you. So what is God's purpose in the life of the believer? We're going to see these two amazing things. So often, when we think about God's purposes in our lives, we can't get out of this moment right now. Like, what's God's purpose for me right now? But Paul is going to take us to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to God's eternal purposes for our lives. Not just the moment-by-moment purposes that do exist in our lives, but to comfort us and to remind us of these promises, Paul is going to jolt us out of this moment right now to the sufferings, the present sufferings that are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And he's going to again remind us of eternity. And he's going to take us to eternity past, and he's going to take us into eternity future, and he's going to show God's purposes in the life of an individual that span that distance. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are cast. As far as eternity past is to eternity future, that's where we find God's purposes for you. We have been called according to his purpose. So what is What are those purposes? We see two things. Well, first, two things are listed as the means to these purposes. So we're going to get to two big purposes, but there's a path to get to these purposes. That makes sense. So the purposes are here, and we get two things mentioned. Okay? We're going to look at these two things to get us to these purposes. All right? So look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn, firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn among many brothers. So two things are listed. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So for us to be conformed to the image of his Son, and then for us to be a brother with the firstborn of all creation, to have a seat at the, t- the family of God, we had to be foreknown and predestined. And then verse 29 or verse 30 is going to unpack that even more for us. Foreknown and predestined. First, God knew everyone who would ever exist before time began, he, whom he foreknew. God foreknew everyone, knowledge-wise. God has complete, total knowledge. This text is not talking about knowledge of people, just sheer knowledge of people. When we think about Adam knowing Eve, we know in the Old Testament that Adam did more than have cognitive information about Eve. This is not a mere foreknowledge that we're talking about when we talk about those whom he foreknew. It's not just about knowledge when Adam knew Eve. And neither is this. God, in other words, if he, those whom he foreknew, the implication is that there are those whom he did not foreknew. This foreknowledge has to do with you personally. It's personal knowledge. Those. You have been foreknown if you're a Christian. And not just foreknown about. You have been foreknown in ways that non-believers have not been foreknown. And God knew, foreknew you and everything about you. He foreknew some individuals in a personal way and did not know other individuals in that same personal way. God foreknew some and did not foreknow others. And if you're a Christian, before time began, God knew you personally, before you even existed. This is something we all want. We all want to be known. We all want that. And here, in the context, again, of great difficulty, we're told a a comforting personal thing, that God knows you. He foreknew you. He knew your rebellion. He knew all your sin. He knew you would choose yourself over God. And he decided to know you anyways. 
God has known you for eternity. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew are the exact same those whom he predestined. You have been foreknown and you have been predestined. Now, predestined, it means, okay, to predetermine, determine beforehand. And he predetermined things about those same people that he foreknew, not based on the purposes of those people, but upon his purposes. He predestined them, he foreknew them according to his purpose. And we are predestined and pre-known for two primary reasons. Number one is to be conformed to the image of His Son. You are predetermined to be conformed by God into the likeness of Christ. It was predetermined for you that you personally, your name, put your name on there. That Ryan Deaton, it was predetermined that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's His purpose for you. For anybody in here who's a Christian, that's God's purpose for you to be conformed into the image of the son Christ likeness and God is working his purposes out in you and throughout eternity there will be a day when you are perfectly conformed to the image of his son perfectly throughout the course of your existence only a vapor just a small vapor this life will you not be conformed to his image just a small piece of time your time on this planet, your block of 70, 80, 90 years, just a small amount in this time, there's a struggle. But eternally, you are to be, because of the purposes of God, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose for you, conformity to Jesus, that we would look like Jesus, that we would live like Jesus, that we would be called a son of God just like Jesus. That's God's purposes for you. So when we're in this life, and we're battling sin, and we're wanting to be like Jesus, and we're praying in the morning, we are praying according to God's purposes for us, that we would be conformed into the image of His Son. Secondly, we were foreknown and predestined that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, what does that mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that He was the firstborn like He was, the, he was created or something like that. Here's what it means. He was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first resurrected body. And he's a template. He was the firstborn from the dead, and we will also be born after death. We will also, in like manner, receive a resurrected body like him. That's bodily. That's fleshly. That can eat. That can taste, touch, feel. That can have somebody feel scars inside. We will have a fleshly, bodily resurrection. And God wanted you and I to be brothers with Christ and to be resurrected like Christ. That's God's purposes in your life, is that you would have a seat in the family of God and be called a son of God the way Jesus is called the son of God. He is the son of God. We will not be Jesus, but by God's grace and his power, we will be like him. That's... We will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's our hope, is that we too will receive resurrected bodies. Resurrected bodies. We see it clearly. He, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a great and faithful big brother who came to make us his family. And that is, is comforting. That's God's purposes for you, is that you would be the brother or sister 
of Jesus. That's what he desires and that's what he accomplishes. And then we get brought into, it's like that foreknown and predestined is opened up for us and we get this great, what's been called golden chain of redemption. We get brought into the story of our salvation. How, when we say the word salvation, what does that mean? And we get brought and invited into just the eternal work of God and it's just like we get caught up into it. And for all the banter about us and what we do, here we're told something that God and God alone does. In the high and holy offense of not having any, anything to do, some people can't tolerate. But for those who see the beauty of this, it's life-changing. Life the golden chain, the ordo salutis in Latin, the order of salvation. Your salvation with God was God's grace from start to finish. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Look, at, look with me at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is pretty incredible. God is doing all the activity in this verse. And the activity in this verse has something to do with us because it's applied to us. It's for us. These are promises to us. As we're walking in difficulty, as we're facing the difficulty of our lives, it, Paul just tells us God's done some things. And it's all past tense. In other words, it's, it's like it's already been done. God's done this. It's his action. There's nothing left for you to do. He's done it, and you're caught up into it. And let us feel the weight of that. Well, how scary that is to tell people there's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to do. Now, we, we know through the commands of God, now, again, this, this balance, this pendulum swing. I'm not talking about there's nothing left to do when it comes to, like, repentance. I'm talking about your salvation, your salvation is by God for you. This is God's activity that's applied to you. Dan Malore, help me understand this. When you go and you put this while back, uh, Hank and Marie came in here and painted this room. This color was here, painted the walls in the back. And this church building received a coat of paint. And this church building did nothing to receive that coat of paint. Thanks for that illustration there, Dan. Hank and Marie came and put the paint on it, and thus this building received a coat of paint. You and I are recipients of God's salvation. We are recipients of God's internal work in us, not from the outside in by the work of our hands or the creed that comes out of our mouth, but the God of the universe supernaturally doing something for you, something for you that you could never do for yourself. That we have, and the world has, tried crawling, ripping our fist and dragging them on the ground with bloody knuckles and clenched teeth, shattered from so much hard work, trying to earn a seat at the family, with the family of God. And here is God telling us, hey, I've done something. I've done this. Just hold on. Hang out. I've done something. Just, just hear, hear what I've done. Let's go through it. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And he also justified and he also glorified. And for those who are tempted in moments, tempted to doubt God's goodness in times of suffering and difficulty, consider eternity past and eternity future. Right now, God has his hand on you in a moment in time. And it's not the only moment he's had his hand on you. Step back and see the big picture. Your name and your, your life and your salvation has been thought about and planned for forever. Now imagine a sm small illustration. Imagine for my kids, my wife is talking about, and we've been talking about, like, we need okay, going on a vacation, and 
we do these church trips for Jordan and I, but we need to get down to the beach and take Ransom down there, and because the ones we go on with the church trips are just with us, and we want to take this trip. Now, imagine I, I started planning for them, and they didn't know it, and I just started planning this ma- you know, major vacation, and it got to vacation time, and I told them, hey, I've, I've planned a vacation out, and I thought about it all through, and, and I did this, and imagine they looked at me and said, how could you, you jerk? You planned something good for me and didn't tell me about it? How dare you? But for some reason, when it comes to the things of God, so many don't want God to plan things before, before them for them. And the reality is God's planned things for you before you were born, before this earth was created. And we get caught up in that good work. As surely as you have been justified, as surely, excuse me, notice this chain. And if he has, and it's all this past tense, if he has done this, then it's a done deal, it's a promise. And as surely as we have been predestined, we will be called. And for those he called, he also will justify. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. These are promises and they're absolute. If you're justified, you will be glorified. If you are justified, you will be glorified. Are you in Christ? You want some assurance for your salvation? That God's going to see you to the end? Well, this says if you've been justified, you will be glorified. And friends, if you take that and say, good deal. Party tonight. I'm going to run around at my wife. I'm going to do this different stuff. Because if that's true, what man or woman in the context of marriage says, hey, honey, I'm going to love you no matter what. No matter what, I will love you, forgive you, I will love you no matter what. Looks at, Shorten was to look at me and say, well, great, I'm going to start calling some dudes. If you're going to love me no matter what, I'm going to go run out on you. What's she going to do? She's going to do what she regularly does, melt. Because I'm so kind. She was the first one to laugh back there. But you understand in the context of love, when God does something for you that's good and right and loving, and when we understand that God is doing something for us that's good and right and loving, how nonsensical and crazy is it for us to look in that and say, well, if he's promised me glorification, I'm going to go cheat on him. If he's promised his goodness and love no matter what, I'm going to go out and do the things that I want to do. How crazy is that? It's infinitely more crazy than my wife looking at me and saying, I'm going to get out, or me saying, well, I'm going to get my little black book and call up my ladies. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. I don't have a little black book, by the way. (laughs) No part of your salvation depends on you. None of it. None of it. Not a single bit of it. It's a gift from God. It's all a gift of God. And we're caught up in to these things by the very mercy of God. Now, notice for some of you, maybe, maybe none of you, but maybe some of you internally are feeling uncomfortable, fearful, because we want it to be about us and our ability. Or we at least want some skin in the game here. Because I'm no freeloader. I'm no freeloader of God's grace. i got to have something to earn it or deserve it or warrant Him giving it to me. I'm no freeloader on the most important thing in the world. It's a scary thing 
And so many souls can't tolerate the reality of the word grace. Unmerited favor. You're ill-deserving of it. And God has given it to you anyways. You weren't neutral. You didn't give him faith to be rewarded. He gave you grace to have faith. Unmerited. But we want that skin in the game. And we struggle with grace. We prefer merit or favor. It makes us feel a little bit more comfort, comfortable. At least just give me some measuring card. Let me know where I'm at. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Please just let me, let me measure the barometer of my spirituality and my life with God by the things that I do. Please, at least I know where I'm at. Don't talk to me about this unmerited favor business. Friends, this will ch- you can't unsee this. When you come face to face with the grace of God, it changes you forever. It's like seeing the movie The Sixth Sense and you can never unsee that he's dead. But although we may prefer merit, merit God's word stands and here we stand. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And friends, your salvation's a done deal. He foreknew you. Sometimes people put a spin on that, and yeah, he said he foreknew you, and then think about all, and then they talk about all the positive things that God foreknew. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He saw all that, and he knew you anyways. Was it the good in you? It was his grace, the grace in him. He's doing this. So we have some options before us. We have some options. Number one, it's a real option. We can talk bad, talk back to God. We can get mad at, mad at God and talk back to him. Why did you not, why did you not foreknow, predestine, call, and justify and glorify everyone? We can get mad. We can reject verses like this. I don't like it. And focus on the things we do like. We can demand to know the secret things of God. Friends, there are things in this, although this is very clear, there are things that we'll never be able to understand. And if we have to demand, make demands upon God before I'll accept some of your word here, this part of your word, or that part of your word, I have to have your secret knowledge. God is not obligated to give you any of that. He's given you this. And he's given me the same thing. So we can demand, that's an option, to know the secret things of God, but who are we to talk back to God? Who are you? Who are you to talk back to God? And who am I? We don't get to talk back to him. When Job talked back to God, God said, who are you, O man? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I did all of this? So there are options there. Who are we to talk back to God? God has given you grace. It's just the truth. And called you to proclaim the good news to everyone you know. That's an option. You can recognize that God has given you grace. Be changed by that. And then recognize that God has called you to proclaim that good news to everyone you know. That's an option, that we can be changed by this, we can be excited by this, we can see it, agree with it, and run with it and say, i got to tell you something that's too good to be true, that nobody in this world could have invented. It's this thing called grace. 
Let me tell you, in a world that's bantering on and on and talking about all the things that we're doing and not doing, let me tell you about something that God does and only God can do. And it's good news for you. It takes a work of God's grace. For the human heart to cherish grace. Let me say that again. It takes a work of God's grace for the human heart to cherish God's grace. Many believers, countless thousands and millions, will have the hardest time still accepting the grace of God. So instead of stomping our feet, the challenge I think is before us, an option we have, is we can bow our knees and we, we can thank Him for His good gift to us. God, thank you. You have been merciful to me. We sang about it. And once you see the grace of God, like I said before, you can't ever unsee it. It changes your life forever. And here's the truth. Grace is the most offensive thing in the world until it delights your heart. And a grace that does not offend is probably no grace at all. But there becomes a moment by the work of God's grace where God's grace becomes delightful. And so I want to challenge you to be delighted this morning. I want you to think about the work of God, God's word to Christians who are in difficulty. And just think about, God, you've done this. There's nothing for me to do for my salvation. You've done it all. And I want you to worship him this morning. Be delighted this morning. For the non-Christian that's out there, here's the deal. Your only hope, your only hope, if you're a non-believer in here, man, woman, child, boy, girl, whoever comes in, your only hope is for these things to be true. Your only hope is for these things to be true. And they are. If eternity rests on you, you are doomed. eternity rests on you, you're doomed. But today you have hope. You're here this morning. I think God has called you here. And here's what God's word tells us. Romans chapter 10, two chapters later. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you a person? Yeah. Well, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. That's a promise. And if this morning you'll stop your rebellion and say, God, will you please save me? I'm sorry. Forgive my sins. He will. That's his purpose in you and for you. He will. And so the promise goes out for anybody. If anybody in this world will repent and believe they will be saved. You're here. God has you here. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. God, I, I ask this morning that you would... God, I never want to... God, help. I just I trust your word. Just I, I ask that you would... You just help us, and I pray that we would be delighted in the fact that uh, all things work together for good for those who are called, love you, love you, and are called according to your purpose.
and you have had your eye on us, and you have had your mind and heart on us from eternity past and into eternity future. And we, by your grace, have been caught up into this great work that you've planned for us, and you're the best father anyone could ever ask for. You're the best father that anyone could ever ask for. And the best of fathers in this world have no comparison to you, the sovereign father of the universe. And so we thank you for your tender, loving care over our lives. Help us to sing. Holy Spirit, I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray.